Good morning, church. I'm so glad you're here. I didn't know if anybody would be here. And a lot of you here, you hearty 11 o'clockers, and you've obviously been refreshed with good sleep, good singing. And thanks for our faithful ones. They're finally leaving. Thank you. Holding out to the end. Thanks for our faithful five. Been so blessed by music this season, haven't we? And uh, I am looking forward, as I have for many years, to our Gospel Priorities series in January. Uh, we get to welcome uh, diverse or minority preachers from around the country, two from our denomination, two from the Gospel Coalition. And uh, you wonder what I'm doing. I'm here all, the, all January and I'll be at church, I'll be in my study, but this gives me a chance to catch up. I prepare a lot of sermons, especially in the Advent season, and this gives me a chance to catch my breath and get ready for the coming year. So I'll be around, but you'll have a break from me for a while in the pulpit. I want to preach from two passages to really one passage, and I'm going to read two passages as we are completing this Advent series on the hymns of Christmas. There's one more hymn that is, is, occurs at the announcement of, of, uh, of John the Baptist announcing that Jesus is going to follow him. One of the hymns we studied was Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who when he found out that John was going to be born to him and to his wife and they couldn't have children. He extolled the Lord. He praised the Lord that he had the privilege of being the father of this son who was going to prepare the way of the Lord. And now this son is preaching. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 3, verse 3. You don't need to turn there. I want you to turn to Isaiah 40 in the middle of your Bible, Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. But I'm going to read this from Matthew 3, and then Isaiah 40 is the passage behind it, the passage in which this announcing work of John the Baptist is prophesied. So hear God's word first from Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent or turn around. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now the prophecy of that preparing work of John the Baptist, calling us to follow the Lord. Now that prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers 
and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, and open our hearts that we would see and we would believe what you say to us in this, your word. And this would be our disposition through the whole year, that our eyes and our hearts would be open and faithful to your leading. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. Philip Keller, not Tim Keller, Philip Keller has written a classic, what has become a classic book in Christian literature. A shepherd looks at at Psalm 23. Now our bookstore was bought out in the last service. I'm sorry, I didn't warn the bookstore manager. I didn't warn King that I was going to say something about this book. So he has others on order. But Philip Keller and his classic book, A Shepherd, looks at Psalm 23, provides these unique insights as a shepherd into the 23rd Psalm of David. David, of course, a shepherd boy himself. And, and this was Phil Keller's occupation for a while. And then he made it his avocation to study the tendencies of flocks and herds and, and shepherds all around the world. And so each of the chapters is based on one of the lines of, of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. As I was thinking about this text, and I return to Keller's book often throughout the year, I, I, was, I, I wanted to go back to that chapter. As I was thinking about the Lord's promise to lead us in this passage and our need to be led by a faithful shepherd in this coming year, I went back to Philip Keller's book and that chapter on He Leads Me Beside Quiet Waters and He Restores My Soul. He tells a story in in one of those chapters about observing, he was standing down in the valley and uh, he was observing a shepherd taking a flock from a high step down uh, a tortuous route down to the flowing stream at the bottom of the valley. And uh, it was a large flock and and it was was a, a, a rocky, unstable path, one that had been trod by many other flocks and and it was hot it was dusty it was difficult uh, but in the valley below was the the, the clear clean water from a snowdrift that was uh, melting above the shepherd knew if he got them there they would drink healthy water they needed that water and they needed clean water But about halfway down, Keller says, he observed two unruly ewes, he called them. Two unruly ewes with their lambs who had just gotten tired of the whole thing. And they saw water off to the side. And they decided they were going to drink that water. Shepherd tried to discourage them. And it was stagnant. It was stale. It was contaminated with with mud. Uh, It was full of urine and manure, it was rancid. Flukeworm, nematodes, other things that would, he knew when they ingested them, it was going to wreak havoc on their digestive system. It might even kill them. But they didn't care. There's water there. 
Why would he be leading us down that tortuous path, that difficult path all the way down that far when there's perfectly good water right here? According to our sight, according to our recollection, this is water good enough. We can take it from here. And Keller said, in those sheep I saw myself. In those sheep I saw so many friends in the Christian church. Those who say, I can take it from here. Why is Jesus leading me around that route? Why is he leading me in that difficult journey? Why is he taking me down that descent, that circuitous path? There's water right here. There's what I need right here. This is good enough for me. Never works out so well. On this eve of 2024, I want to call you with this prophet to follow the Lord. That's the simple message. Follow the Lord no matter what. Follow Jesus, the good and perfect shepherd, no matter what. And if Jesus is the one you follow first and foremost, this then is what will characterize your life. You will, first of all, you will, first of all, be one who lives as one who is forgiven. Look at these amazing words beginning in verse one. Comfort, comfort my people. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, this is an amazing statement. For the first 39 chapters, Isaiah has been warning the people of Judah, you are, you're on track to follow your forefathers as they have lived for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, they've had this propensity to turn toward any politician, any political force that promised them health with their economy, promised them new and fresh gods, worldviews that would make them more prosperous, help their crops, help them have more children, whatever it is. They have had this propensity of turning to whatever political power would promise them more immediate success. And for hundreds of years, they've had to learn the hard way that it never works out well. That they have to compromise their faith. And to compromise their faith is to compromise the way God intended us to live. And it never works out well. And often, consistently, the people of God have been destroyed. They've been, their nation has been destroyed. They've been taken into exile. They've been put away as God has disciplined to bring them back. And so he says in the first part of Isaiah, this is exactly what you're going to do. I know your hearts. I know what you're going to do. As I know that every human being does the same thing. I know you are going to pursue this course of pragmatism. You're going to pursue whatever force, whatever worldview, whatever political power offers you the most immediate success. And then I'm going to have to take you into exile for 70 years. I'm going to have to discipline you. I'm going to have to take you through rough times. And then I'm going to bring you back. And when I do, I'm going to comfort you. What kind of God is that? What kind of God? 
says, I know you're going to rebel against me. I know you're going to be ungrateful. I know you're going to, to re- revolt against my way. You're going to choose other, other gods. You're going to choose other ways that seem easier. I know you're going to do it. And I'm going to have to discipline and bring you back. And when you do, when I bring you back, I'm going to speak comfort over you. There's no other God, no other worldview you'll find like that. It's not even the God that many of us live with, even though we claim we call ourselves Christians and we we may be Christians, but our propensity, our default is to think God rewards faithfulness. And if I'm faithful, God reward me. If I do the right things, God will give me good things. I do bad things, he'll punish me. And then I have to earn my way back into his love. As opposed to, God loves you. In Jesus Christ, Christ is your Savior. He loves you, period. We act rebelliously. We are foolish. We are pragmatists. We're selfish. We're materialistic. We're lustful. And Jesus throws the roadblocks in front of us. He takes things away from us. He reads us through hard times but it is always to lead us back to himself that he might say, now I want to comfort you. Now I know what some of you must be thinking. You say, well, I don't want to worship that God. I want a God because you're on your high horse today. Some of you may be on your high horse today. You're thinking pretty good about yourself. And so you think, uh, you know, I do the right things and God rewards me and he should because after all, I am me. So I don't want a God who has such elastic standards. I want a just God. I want a God that holds a standard, holds everybody accountable. And I know that people are going to abuse what the pastor is saying today, this thing about grace. They're going to abuse it. They're going to go off and live crazy lives. But how does God say, comfort, comfort my people when they are rebellious? Well, read on. He says, comfort, he says, doubly comfort my people. Speak, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her. I want you to announce boldly to them that her warfare has ended. How? Because her iniquity is pardoned. Well, how does he pardon it? Does he sweep it under the rug? Does he ignore it? Oh, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. So, Mr. Pharisee, Mrs. Pharisee, I hear, I hear you saying, there's the answer right there. That's how he is able to pardon people. He punishes them doubly. This is double jeopardy. So he punishes them one time, and then he convicts them a second time and punishes them again. Well, that's just about right. I can handle that. That's not what he says at all. This word, uh, this adjective, double, used a couple of times in the Bible. It, it refers to something that's complementary, something that's a duplicate, something that's reflective, a match. So double armament, a second layer of armament. 
matching the first, but just another layer. Or the doubling of a bridle, folding one piece of leather over another, folding it into your hand so that it's doubly secure or easier to hold. This is... This is complementarity. So God is saying, I am going to pardon her iniquity because I will repay the iniquity with something that is complementary, that covers it, that pardons it. Think about this image. There's another image of this, in which this word occurs in the, in the ancient world. A creditor when someone had not paid his bill. A creditor would write out the bill on a piece of paper and nail it to the debtor's door so as to announce to his neighbors and everyone around, this is a debt beat. This one owes me for this, for this, uh, this fee. They owe me this money and he's not paid it. I want everybody to know it. But if that person paid that debt, the creditor would come and take the piece of paper and fold it over, covering the words of announcement, one fold of paper perfectly matched to the bottom fold of the paper, covering it. Are you with me? Jesus, this is what Jesus came to do. It's because human beings had rebelled against God. God had to complement that, had to be the perfect reflection of that. He had to be the word of God incarnate. He had to come as a human being because we had lived, we live sinful lives. He had to live a righteous life because we deserve to die a cursed death. He had to die a cursed death and take that righteousness and cover our sin. Every sin covered with the complementary righteousness of the life and death of Christ. Here is how I can speak comfort to the people of Second Pres, the people of Memphis, the people of Judah. This is how I can say, I'm speaking tenderly to you. The warfare is ended. It's because your iniquity is pardoned, not because I'm rewarding you for your righteousness. You can never do that. Not because I'm sweeping it under the rug, not because I'm just ignoring it, not because I'm doubly judging it, because I have once for all sufficiently judged it in the life and death of Jesus. What difference will that make? Living as forgiven people. Is there someone who has repented to you, asked you for forgiveness, and you're not forgiving? How could you withhold it? Is there someone to whom you have confessed and repented, but they're holding a grudge against you, and it it tears you up inside. You say, I can't live until they forgive me. But oh, you can, because they should forgive you. They'll have to answer to God for why they haven't forgiven you when they have been forgiven. But if you have been forgiven by Jesus, that's the only opinion and verdict that that ultimately matters. It will make you happier. It'll make you joyful. It'll it will it will change your perspective on daily life 
It'll make your evangelism contagious. He has, here is the one who forgave me. He can forgive you too. Living as forgiven. When your eyes are on Christ, the one who has gone the way of the cross in your behalf, no matter what you're going through, your eyes fixed on Christ, you can be assured, I am forgiven. You don't have to worry about, am I being judged for my sins? If you've confessed your sins, am I being punished? Has God abandoned me? You are forgiven. Keep your eyes on Jesus this year. The second way you'll live is uh, you live as one who is guided. Seems painfully obvious, doesn't it? But, but we, we ignore it. A voice cries in the wilderness, verse 3, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. This is, what, this is what John was sent to announce. The one who is coming to level out all of these valleys and tear down these mountains and provide a way in the desert through his righteousness. This one is coming. He's coming in the flesh. He's going to abide with you in the spirit. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's going to guide you through this world all the way into the next. But some people say, surely no one here would say this, but some people say, I don't need to be guided. I'm a smart person. I'm a wise business person. I'm a mom. I'm an accomplished professional. I'm highly educated. I'm enlightened. I don't need to be led. I can make my own conclusions and they are reliable. The truth is, everyone is led by something or someone. Everybody is led. Everyone is being led. Every idea has a history. That can be the fun of studying history. You, you find out the history of ideas. You, you, you meet somebody who thinks they have an original thought, and you find out it has a long history. It goes back to several or one particular worldview or one teacher. Occasionally in human history, it's been an original idea, but not many of them. And especially now with the Internet, it's making us even more dumb and unoriginal. The algorithms that feed social media are the algorithms that feed the media. And so every time you read a perspective, the, 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 the newspapers, the radio broadcasts, the, the, and then especially the wise guidance of TikTok, the, these, are all, these are all governed by the algorithms you've put in or your propensity to look for that source which is going to agree with you and reinforce what you already think and you think you've thought a new thought and you think that there are several there, there are a bunch of smart people out there because they think the way you do and you think all the other people are wrong and we become more and more polarized more and more victims of the either or fallacy either or logical fallacy it has to be this has to be that as opposed to a third way Every idea has a history. Everyone is being led by something, by someone. 
you know, part of my preparation to be a pastor, I don't do this perfectly, but part of my preparation through the many years of being a pastor is to listen to all the political outlets, to listen, to read across the political and uh, political news media spectrum. And it helps me because when someone expresses an an opinion about something, especially about a a cultural, ethical issue, I can usually easily identify it with the particular personality or worldview that's being expressed. Of course, you're saying exactly what that pundit says or that pundit says. No new ideas. Here's what we must resolve in the coming year. No question about whether or not we're being led by someone or something. The question is, who is leading us? And it must be Christ and his word first. We must train ourselves to say, okay, that is the issue. This is maybe what other people are saying. But what does God's word say and the principles of God's word say? And this is what you will often find. They don't fit cleanly into any media outlet. They don't fit cleanly into any political party. And they will be different from most of your peers in your subgroup. Certainly very different from the dominant zeitgeist of the whole culture. And it'll be costly. People will say, you're backward. You're a fanatic. You're a a conspiracy theorist or you're a liberal. You're a conservative. They'll attach some label to you that that they've learned from their uh, their groupthink. Some label to put on you to dismiss you and make you more, more safe. But when you focus on God's word and his principles first, though it will put you at odds with many, if not most around you, you will be able to lay your head on your pillow at night and say with the psalmist, you guide me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. No matter who leaves me, the boys turn against me in the locker room. They put me out of the club. They, I lose that deal. They, they look at me funny in my neighborhood. Whatever it is, it will be worth it because you're following Jesus. Let's resolve to do that in the coming year. To ask, what does God's word teach? You're not sure about it? Ask someone you rely upon. It's why pastors and elders are given to you. It's why, it's why Bible teachers are given. It's why reliable sources of biblical teaching are given to you to apply it to contemporary issues. I have a friend who gets lost a lot. I do, but I'm not talking about myself. But I have a friend who gets lost a lot. <clears throat> and when GPS came out, it was his salvation. It was the pearl of great price. He called it his girlfriend. He was happily married, but it was his faithful companion. And there were, uh, I, he came to my, to my town once where I, where I was living and 
and uh, he was in a hotel and he was coming out to my house. And I gave, I gave him, I started giving directions. Don't need to give me directions. I can get there. GPS will take me. I said, well, how is GPS taking you? Tell me what uh, is he, he told me, and I said, no, that's a, that's a long way out of the way. Why don't you turn here at this light, turn there, there. you're going to go, you're, you're just going to, it's going to be a, a, a long path. You'll just, just cut this back road, you'll pop out where you need to be. He said, stop, save your words. GPS will take me. I said, you're going to go a lot, I don't care, I don't care, he said, if I go two states over. GPS is my friend and GPS has never let me down. GPS will get me to your house. I will get there. Never let me down. Now GPS can let you down, but Jesus never will. Sometimes you'll say, why am I doing, if I do that, oh my goodness, that'll be so hard. That'll be such self-denial. If I do that, it'll cost me money. It'll cost me that business deal. It'll cost me my friendships. It'll be such a circuitous path. Why am I following the Lord here? This just seems to be crazy when here is the obvious way. This politician is offering what I really need. This this deal, this bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Why? It'll always let you down. If not in this life, in the world to come. Your life will be as largely unremarkable as most lives unless you follow Jesus. To follow him is to live as one who is forgiven. To follow him is to walk as one who is guided. To follow him is to hope as one who is certainly going to be glorified. Now, I forgot to make this point in the previous service. So see, it pays. It pays to sleep in. Come to the 11 o'clock service. The additional point I wanted to make is that, that that previous point, you can say, okay, I'm following the Bible. That is, I find a proof text for every prejudice I want to have. I make up my mind what I want to be true. And then I go searching for a text and I find it out of context. And I put it in parentheses and I say, I'm following the Bible. Well, there's another filter that you need to put on. And that is, does it glorify the gospel? Does it glorify the hope of glory, the glory of the Lord? The glory of the Lord is his mercy. The, the, the glory of the Lord, is, as, as Moses understood, was the, the center of his being. His impulse, the, 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 what makes him tick is his mercy. And so all of history is the revelation of the... Is, is the is being coordinated to the praise of his glorious grace. The whole of, etern- of, of, of uh, eternity will be praising God for his mercy. And so you must not only ask, what is the biblical principle I have to follow? You have to ask, what most glorifies the gospel? What is most in keeping with the character of the gospel? And this is what you can ask. Is this self-sacrificing? Is this loving? Is this the most self-sacrificial form of love? Then okay. 
That's the biblical principle. And this glory, the glory of the gospel, the revelation that the the one all-important historical event was the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us to live and die in our place and guide us home to that place where we will glorify him for his mercy forever. That's going to happen. It will be. Somebody this morning when I was walking in the first service said, I've been reviewing my notes and I just finished reading through the Bible and I'm looking at my notes from Revelation that, that we, we preached, that we studied a year and a half ago. And uh, you're right. I, I thank you for that, that reminder. Jesus wins. Jesus is going to win. He, he says right here, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. He determines that it will be revealed and all flesh will see it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. No matter how hopeless, how despairing your situation seems to be, you may be confident the glory of God's mercy will be revealed. The old Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said, all God's promises are as good as God's facts. So we may hope when all things visible preach despair. I turn to another old favorite book this week, a correspondence between John Newton and a young minister named John Rylands Jr. John Ryland was a <clears throat> faithful minister, uh, but he had all kinds of insecurities. His dad was hard on him. He was a minister too. And he was a worrying kind of guy. John Newton was saved out of slave trading. He was the author of Amazing Grace. He, he was transformed from a slave trader into a, a poet, a hymn writer, and a pastor in the heart of London. And so Rylands looked to John Newton as a mentor, as the one who would apply God's sovereignty and grace to his life. One occasion, John Ryland, even as a pastor, wrote to his mentor and said, Christ is asleep and the ship is going down to the bottom. He's looking around at the church. He's looking around at the, at the theological compromise. He's looking at the, the, the slave trade around the world. He's looking at the, the corruption of English society. Christ is asleep. The world is going to the bottom of the sea. And Christ is asleep in the bow. It's hopeless. John Newton wrote back the next day. He said many fatherly pastoral things to him. But among them, he said this, the ship that the apostles were in, the ship was safe when Christ was in her, though he was really asleep. At present, I can tell you good news, though you know it, he is wide awake and his eyes are in every place. The ark is fixed upon an immovable foundation, and if we think we see it totter, it is our own heads swimming. Jesus is in charge. Whatever seems to be out of control, 
It's in his hands he's working all together for the praise of his glorious grace. You will, with your eyes fixed on Christ and on the hope of eternal life, not the wishful thinking, but the confidence that this will happen will change the way you live in the present. You will live with one as hope of glory. There's one final image from Philip Keller's book, Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He said on another occasion, he was in equatorial Africa and it was beastly hot. It was an arid place and he was moving these large flocks through and they were desperate for water. And he saw these shepherds leading sheep up to the side of a mountain and, and there was curious whole shafts cut into the side of the mountain and there were ramps inside. They would drive these sheep into the holes and then down the ramps and at the bottom of the ramp was a trickling stream and just above the stream between the man who ran the cave and the sheep was a trough. This man, he said, was stripped down to his to his uh, waist and he was he was sweating profusely his skin was glistening in this this heat of this place as he was picking up this water in in a bucket and tossing it into the trough and the and the and the sheep are pressing in drinking their fill over and over and over again he's filling this trough with the water this man was exerting everything he said he said to take care of these sheep. And that is Jesus. Not just one who wrings his hand and says, I hope you'll follow me. Please hang in there. But one who, when he came, said, I will never leave you or forsake you. One who is constantly awake, he never sleeps. One who's constantly praying for you, constantly preaching to you, constantly sharing the word of his promises with you in the, in the, with the spirit, working by and with the word and the sacraments, who's, who's, who's constantly surrounding you with encouragement. This is one who works tirelessly to get you through this world to the next, who leads you to quiet waters and green pastures, even at times, though, it's necessary to go through the valley of the shadow. Until your cup overflows and you experience goodness and mercy all the days of your life and you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Resolve to follow him this year first and foremost. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these dear people Second prayers who attend to your word. Those joining us in far-flung places, we pray that you would help our unbelief. Focus our eyes on our good and faithful shepherd. Guide us through 2024. May we live confidently as forgiven people. May we live and speak and act hopefully as those who will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.